as we go through the days of sitting and walking, we use the quality of mindfulness as the central feature for developing and deepening practice. It truly is a key quality that allows for clear seeing and understanding of how we create suffering for ourselves, not of what it takes to stop creating suffering here and now, and be more free, at ease and at home within ourselves and within our world. In addition to mindfulness, there are a number of other qualities of the heart and mind that are most essential to this process of understanding and of liberation. There's a group of so-called mental factors and they're called India or shaping faculties. Five of these are known as the so-called spiritual shaping faculties. And these five are faith, trust, confidence, number one, energy, effort, number two, mindfulness, number three, collectedness, concentration, number four, and wisdom, insight, number five. It's these qualities we need to strengthen if we wish to deepen our understanding of life, of our relationship to life. The common function of those indriya consists in exercising a dominating, governing or shaping influence over the other emotional and mental factors associated with them. The word Indriya derives from the Pali word Inda or the Sanskrit word Indra which means ruler or governor or lord. Indriya, uh, Indra is said to be the king of the devas, king of the gods. And these qualities or factors rule or influence or determine or shape the mind state in which they're present. That's why they're very important and powerful. That's why they're called determining or controlling faculties sometimes or shaping faculties. So because they bring their negative, unwholesome opposites under control, they're called controlling faculties. Faith, trust, confidence, keep doubt, fear, worry, discouragement and lack of devotion under control. Energy and effort overcome laziness and drowsiness. Mindfulness eliminates unawareness and collectedness, concentration, controls restlessness and distraction. And wisdom dissolves ignorance and delusion. The first one of these qualities or indriyas is faith or trust or confidence. 
The Pali word is sata, and it derives from the word sam, which means well, and the root ta, which means to establish, to place. So it says something like well placed or well established. And traditionally that means, in particular, well established confidence in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. I mentioned on Saturday. This means faith and trust into awakening from delusion, into the possibility, our potential for awakening, for liberation, or faith and trust into the awakened one. Buddha meaning someone who is awakened. It also means faith and trust into the teachings and the way and means which help us to recognize the universal law, the laws of life, the true nature of reality, and bring us into harmony with it, Dharma. It also means faith and trust in those who have walked the path before us, those who walk ahead of us, those who walk together with us, Sangha. In very practical terms, in our meditation here it means we trust this process of awakening, of seeing what is. And we trust that understanding and directly feeling how we create suffering and how we can be free will move our hearts and minds to relate more and more in wise and compassionate ways. We trust in this clarifying and healing process rather than reacting with our old strategies. Trying to fix things the way we think they should be or the way we want them to be. Faith has many helpful functions. It's faith or trust is said to appease the appease the upheaval and commotion of the tormenting emotions of heart and mind, of greed and anger, fear, anxiety, feelings of separateness. It brings relief. It purifies also the state of mind in which torment is present. A text says, just as the water purifying jewel of a legendary universal ruler dissolves mud and algae and purifies and clears the water, just so does trust, faith and confidence purify and clarify the heart and mind. Also, faith and trust act as a gateway for all the wholesome and beautiful qualities of heart and mind. Saying, in other words, that when satta is present, then openness, generosity, kindness, care, and all those wholesome, wonderful qualities 
are present. It's a really desirable and wonderful quality in our life and in our practice. The text speaks of three kinds of faith or trust. Bright or enthusiastic faith, there's verified faith, there's unshakable faith or certainty. The first one, bright, enthusiastic faith, can arise when we perhaps meet a very inspiring person, or when we hear a convincing discourse or teaching or piece of wisdom. For some, it can arise through a piece of art, maybe a touching image of Mother Mary or a beautiful Buddha statue or an impressive then calligraphy or whatever we feel <coughs> touched, attracted, inspired, enthusiastic, enjoy devotion and faith fill our hearts. The kind of faith that can cause us to make contact, to maybe begin a spiritual practice, to enter the path compared to the faith of falling in love in a relationship, sort of the honeymoon phase. When I first met my teacher, Keshe in India, or when I first met the Dalai Lama personally, I felt that way, enthused, inspired, trusting. Remember when I heard the word shunyata, the insubstantial, non-graspable nature of things for the first time. My body hair stood on end. And looking back, I don't think I had a clue what it meant, but something <laughs> spoke to me. I don't know whatever it was. When I was first introduced to the Pasana meditation at the so-called Goenka retreat, same thing. Very inspired feels like coming home or as if everything were suddenly clear there'll be maybe uh, much that really is clear but it's the way it feels or we feel that there's something we always knew or we always were looking for and we found it <coughs> moments of bright inspiring or enthusiastic faith are important in our lives. They can change our life completely, move ourselves in a different, in a new direction. Yet this enthusiastic faith can also be dangerous because it lacks an element of wisdom. Therefore it can easily become blind faith or mere belief and stay that way. Not verified faith or mere belief tends to become rigid quite easily. Critical investigation of the person, maybe the guru or the teacher or the teaching or the method we believe in, is then unwished for. Even positive, good, 
alternatives can be seen as undermining. And in this way, sectarianism, even fundamentalism, can arise. And we have that sense of Buddhism too. And so the positive bright space can degenerate into fanaticism. We need to verify, to investigate, to test or try out what has inspired our faith. And it's very obviously the key. It's through our own practice and application that verified faith begins to arise. <coughs> you could say if you're here the first time, it was the first kind of faith who brought you here. It was strong enough to make you think, you know, I want to go there. Maybe you heard somebody say good things. Or you read something about the place or the practice, and it brought you here. But once you're here, what you're doing now is to verify, to actually put what is taught into practice and then to find out for it for yourself, if it's of value, if it's true, if it does what it is said to be able to do. So, verified faith is deeper and more solid or steady than the first kind. It's a less exuberant but more sound and steady kind of enthusiasm. If we remain limited to bright faith, the first one, we can easily lose our momentum also. Unfortunately, we do see this at times. See people sometimes who have been touched and inspired by the teaching, by someone who lives by it, or by the first taste of their own practice. The people who then somehow don't manage to find the time, to find the interest, find the energy necessary to make what they had discovered really their own. And then their inspiration slowly evaporates, their enthusiasm fades, and nothing but a lingering bitter taste of regret remains. And I've seen this, and sometimes I find it quite sad. It's like having missed their one chance in a lifetime of entering to the gate to genuine happiness and freedom. So verified faith is important, but of course isn't enough in itself. We also need the other four spiritual faculties to be developed, faculties of energy, mindfulness, of collectedness, and of wisdom. We do apply and generate this in a consistent way. We start to see and experience the healing and the liberating powers of the practice ourselves in our own experience. We begin to feel lighter, freer, <coughs> kinder, and wiser. And in this way, Verified faith becomes certainty, becomes eventually, if seen and understood deeply ourselves, becomes unshakable faith beyond all doubt.
the fruit of a mature practice. In this way, bright, enthusiastic faith becomes verified faith and eventually unshakable faith. <coughs> Effort, energy, virya, the second quality or indriya here. A text says effort, energy should be seen as the root of all realizations. Virya or effort is an indriya or a spiritual shaping faculty because it overcomes laziness. Virya, the Pali word, really means literally heroic or do you say heroinic in the female form? <laughs> Points out an important aspect of this faculty. The Burmese master Upandita Sayadaw often speaks about heroic effort with respect to a consistent, continuous application of effort to being mindful and present. What we try to do here is certainly very demanding. Not for cowards, to expose oneself to oneself. For hours, for days, even weeks and years, it takes courage. At times we believe or hope that the practice of meditation, the life of spirituality, is a matter of following our heart. It's kind of a new age saying, I'm following my heart. Sounds quite good. It's almost that, but not quite. There's a subtle nuance that um, Ashan Sumero expresses when he says, it's not a matter of following our heart, but it's a matter of training our heart. Interesting difference. And that's where effort energy, enthusiasm comes in. The Lama Tsongsar Kensi Rinpoche calls the same quality discipline. He once said, with discipline it's very interesting. It's something we don't want to have. It's something we want to have around us. <laughs> discipline, effort, energy, most important is that we understand clearly what it is that we make our effort for. And there's an interesting statement by Krishnamurti that it's the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. Isn't that interesting? It's not our effort to be free that liberates the truth. It does take tremendous interest, effort and attention. But it's not the effort to change things so much or to control or to manipulate or to improve them according to what we think, the way we think they should be improved, according to our wishes or ideas. Rather it's the effort to see reality, the effort it takes to see the truth as it is. 
the, the true seeing and understanding reality as it is that will transform us, liberate. And that means it's the effort to come back to where we already are, to mindfully feel and perceive what is present right here and now. Certainly not always easy, but it's extraordinarily simple. It's really simple. Over and over, when things get very complex, to remember, it's just to be with what is happening. If you want to once more do this little exercise, feel your hand where it's right now. Just move your attention there. It doesn't take much to feel it. If you feel it the way it is right now, that was right effort. Bring the attention there, feel how it is. Mine is a little warm where it touches my leg and it's cold in the fingertips. There's touch sensation. I imagine you would try to make it feel totally differently. Like you would move your attention there and feel it really hot. That would be a problem, isn't it? We often do that. We don't just make the effort to feel how things are, but we think they should feel differently, they should be differently from what they are. So we make effort to be there and then extra effort to change things. Usually we want to change it from unpleasant to more pleasant. Or if it is pleasant, then it seems to fade. We try to make effort to keep the pleasant. And that's too much effort or effort, a wrongly understood effort. It'll be really hard work and it'll be useless. It's to be just with the way it is. That's right effort. Now to make things a bit more complex and complicated. Seemingly complicated. Let's look at how right effort is described traditionally. Right or appropriate effort is said to be fourfold. It's the effort to cause wholesome mind states that aren't yet present within us, like kindness, mindfulness, to arise. It's the effort to strengthen wholesome mind states that are already present. Strengthen them. Third one is the effort to avoid unwholesome negative mind states that haven't yet arisen, that are not <coughs> yet present in, in us. And number four is the effort of letting go of unwholesome negative mind states that are present in us. So hearing this now one might get the impression that a lot has to be done, a lot has to be changed, a lot has to be controlled or fabricated. And yet, in fact, what it takes to achieve this fourfold effort, to achieve all this, really is the appropriate kind of mindfulness or awareness. It's exactly that. <coughs> Whenever we are present, with an interested, a careful, and a truly non-judgmental, could say a friendly, caring mindfulness, 
the fourfold effort is achieved. This kind of wholesome space of awareness will engender and strengthen wholesomeness and will cause unwholesomeness to lose momentum, to lose energy, to taper out and to heal. Thus the appropriate effort really is to cultivate this third spiritual faculty, right, appropriate mindfulness. Faith to engage in the practice, the effort it takes to really be present with what is here right now. And then a third faculty, right mindfulness, or Samma Sati, really the heart of this practice. The word Sati is related to the word to remember, to remember to be present in this moment, to be awake, attentive, and aware. It's not a judgmental, evaluating, critical awareness, but an interested, kind, and equanimous, sensing, recognizing, seeing of what is right now. So the effort to be aware isn't an act of will or force, but a waking up to see clearly. Ramdas says, it's an act of tuning. We tune into this moment's experience. What needs to be part of the mindfulness we're talking about here is the quality of great care, quality of deep interest, and of continuity. Here's a well known saying by the late Thai teacher Ashan Chah. He said, your practice of mindfulness should begin as soon as you awaken, in the morning. It should continue until you fall asleep at night. Don't be concerned about how long you can sit. Some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I have seen chickens sit on their nests for days on end. What is important is only that you keep wakeful, whether you're walking or sitting or going to the bathroom. Maybe we could say what is needed is the quality of a silent, careful listening, as Kabir says. says why do they call God in such a loud voice in their prayers at dusk? Surely the Holy One is not deaf. She hears the delicate anklets that ring on the feet of a tiny insect as it walks. Get the picture? We need the careful listening that hears the delicate anklets that ring on the legs of a little insect that walks along. 
What does it mean to be aware of this moment? Not thinking about the present, not analyzing very much this moment's experience, not comparing, judging, changing or controlling the experience. I mean, we make contact. We feel and see, but mostly feel directly what's present. We connect with the breath or with the pleasant, unpleasant or neutral body sensations as we have started doing today. We're aware, mindful of our sense experience of hearing, of seeing, of smelling, of tasting when they're present. We're mindful of our feelings, emotions and various mental factors aware but not lost in them. And we know when thinking and ideas and concepts and images are present in the mind. Again, without being identified so much, without being caught so much in them. We're mindful and aware more and more of any experience that arises in the present moment. This appropriate, the right mindfulness is the indriya or spiritual shaping faculty because it awakens us from unawareness, from mechanical, habitual ways of acting and being, and from identification with experience. <coughs> My teacher, Nyoto Ken Rinpoche, who died a couple of years ago, he wrote this poem. Being Tibetan, he uses very evocative, sometimes also very blunt language and imagery. It's called Mindfulness, the Mirror of the Mind. I am the mirror of mindfulness. Look undistractedly at the nature of the mind. Mindfulness is the root of the Dharma. Mindfulness is the main practice of the path. Mindfulness is a stuff for the mind to lean on. Mindfulness is the friend of primordial wisdom awareness. Mindfulness is the support of Mahamudra, of Dzogchen, and of Madhyamika. types of awareness and wisdom meditations. Without mindfulness, one will be overcome by Mara, the unwholesome qualities of the mind. Without mindfulness, one is carried away by laziness. Through lack of mindfulness, all negative actions are committed. Through lack of mindfulness, one's aims cannot be accomplished. To be without mindfulness is to be like a heap of shit. To be without mindfulness is to slumber in an ocean of piss. <laughs> to be without mindfulness is to be a lifeless corpse. Friends, I request you, take mindfulness as a support. <laughs> mm. 
this space, this effort, energy, and this mindfulness. Continual effort to be aware and present brings about collectedness and concentration, the fourth indriya, the fourth spiritual shaping faculty. Mindfulness is comparable to the light or the brightness, let's say, of a candle, that which makes it possible to see things, <coughs> brightness. Collectedness, concentration, can be compared to the steadiness of the flame. Say if it burns in a windless room very steadily, that, that's what allows for a clearer, for a more precise, continuous, more profound seeing. But that's how they're related. Collectedness and steadiness is an indriya or a spiritual shaping faculty because it brings distractedness, scatteredness and restlessness under control. Collectedness or concentration is defined as a quality which enables the mind to abide one-pointedly on an object for a prolonged, prolonged period of time. Collectedness and steadiness is the most helpful and supportive quality, very obviously, of heart and mind, particularly in meditation, but of course also elsewhere in life. In order to develop collectedness and steadiness, we need to strengthen two specific qualities of mind. They are the first two of the so-called jhana factors, or factors of absorption, you could call them. In Pali they are called vitaka and vichara. Vitaka means something like applied attention, which means going towards the object, making contact, let's say, with the in-breath or with the sensation that we're feeling right now or the sound that's happening. It's going with the mindfulness, going there and making contact. The first one, the act of applying mindfulness to the object. The second vichara means sustained attention, staying with that object, holding the contact with that in-breath. We touch it and then we stay connected as long as it lasts with the sensation. We touch it and then we're with it for a while, exploring feeling, or with the sound. It's not like there's a sound and then we make some commentary about it and that was it. The sound and then hearing and sustaining the mindfulness of being with the hearing for as long as the hearing lasts. Again, the first one with Dhaka is the movement to movement towards the object, the making of contact with the breath or with the tension in the shoulder or the warmth in the heart, or the sound, whatever, vichara, the second, is the staying with the object, the holding of the contact. And there's some illustrations that I find useful, and I'll, I'll uh, list them, just maybe to uh, make more impact, maybe, so 
throughout the day to remember connecting, sustaining, contact, holding the contact. One image, one illustration is hitting the bell. First one is hitting, and then the sound stays, sustaining the contact, as long as it lasts. Or it's like a bee that flies into a flower, and then the second one is like what every bee do in the flowers, you know, they enjoy. <laughs> or it's like, the first one is like a bird flapping wings to take off, and the second one is like the bird gliding along. Or it's like grasping a plate and then rubbing, drying the plate. If you remember in the meditation, really pay attention to that second aspect. We do go there, we do touch. Do we stay there? That's what's helpful, that's what strengthens the capacity to stay present. That's what eventually generates collectedness, what generates steadiness. Doing it with continuity deepens the collectedness, the steadiness. Much the way the rubbing of two pieces of wood will generate heat and eventually fire if we rub them long enough. Yet all this space, all this effort, all this mindfulness and collected awareness serves one purpose. Creating the conditions for insight, for wisdom to arise. The fifth spiritual shaping faculty. Since it's through wise and clear seeing that equanimity, serenity, inner freedom, and also love and compassion will arise. Panya, understanding, wisdom, is related to pa, which means right, correct, and nya, knowing, understanding. Panya, wisdom here means correct comprehension of reality, insight, correct insight into things as they are, into the process of the heart and mind, into the process of existence into the nature of things. Wisdom or insight eliminates or illumines or enlightens us from ignorance, from delusion, from unrealistic perception of things and of life. That's why it is an indriya, the spiritual shaping faculty. What Panya or wisdom sees clearly is the impermanence of all things in existence, all composed things in existence, outside or within ourselves or the world. There's nothing solid or fixed, but it's a dynamic process, constantly arising, changing, disappearing experience. Nothing solid, nothing we can really grasp and hold on to. Much like a dream, much like a reflection, much like a mirage. 
the American Indian Crawford said, what is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And Yoshio Ken Rinpoche writes, all the dharma, all those phenomena, though thought to be permanent, they do not last. When examined, they are just, just empty forms. They appear without true existence. Look outward at the appearing objects, and like the water in the mirage, they are more exclusive than delusion. Unreal like dreams and delusions, they resemble a reflected moon or a rainbow. Look inward at your own mind. It seems quite exciting when not examined, but when examined, there's nothing to it. It cannot be identified saying, that's it, but it is elusive like mist, its nature sky-like and boundless. You think of Saturday evening, or yesterday, remember? Sleepiness, a little difficult, all that stuff. Where is it? It's not gone somewhere where everything goes. It's, you know, it's not still back there somewhere with Caesar and Alexander the Great or something. Stashed. It's gone. <laughs> completely gone. Even as I speak my words, they do something. They have some effect. And yet, completely gone, the moment they appear, they're already disappeared, and then something else happens, arises, and changes again. And we meditate in order to get directly in touch with that fact of impermanence, that fact of the ingraspability of all things. And that's why we practice and develop the five indriyas. As Krishnamurti says, it's the truth about how things are that liberates, not our effort to be free. We know that this world, that all things are impermanent, are in constant flux and not graspable. Yet in spite of knowing better, we hold on to things, we hold on to people, we hold on to situations. We cling to them and want to keep them. We not create tremendous amounts of suffering for ourselves whenever they do change, they do go away, they disappear. But whenever we directly see and experience the dynamic, non-graspable nature of things, we let go. We allow them to be their own way. We're willing to dance to the rhythm of the universe rather than endlessly struggling against it in the hope that the universe will eventually adjust to my wishes. Wei Wu Wei says, the reason why we have so much trouble in life is that we do 99% of all for ourselves and there isn't one. 
the experience, the insight which is deep enough to really touch us, to really transform and liberate our inner attitudes, our inner being. That is wisdom or panya prajna. And it's this kind of insight and wisdom also that sees through our seeming separateness and allows for deeper connectedness or belonging and thus for kindness and compassion to arise. One last point I'd like to make. I think what is interesting for us meditators, the fact that the indriya complement, balance each other, or should balance each other, or need to be brought into balance perhaps. The image that's used here is one of a chariot drawn by two pairs of horses, four horses. To move safely and effectively, a skillful charioteer is needed, who sees to it that the horses draw or pull evenly in the right direction. Faith and wisdom, number one and number five. Effort and collectedness, number two and number four are the two times two horses. Mindfulness is the skillful charioteer, number three. As we already saw in the beginning, faith needs to be balanced and complemented by wisdom, so that faith isn't blind. At the same time, wisdom needs to be complemented by faith, so that it doesn't merely stay cerebral and intellectual, but touches the depth of one's being. When there's wisdom, understanding, but no faith, no devotion, we may understand something very clearly, even from experience, but we may not translate it into actual life, keep it at the intellectual understanding level. Faith provides the necessary emotional component, the depth, commitment, and devotion to actually translate things into life. Faith and wisdom, two horses. Effort needs to be paired and balanced with collectedness. Effort, energy, brings about wakefulness, clarity, and strength in our mind. While collectedness with too little energy will cause the mind to sink, sink into the object. We're with the object, but there's no energy, so it's a kind of sinking, not being clear, which can eventually even lead to dullness, drowsiness, sleepiness. Right mindfulness is the quality that recognizes what is lacking and what is in excess. It's the spiritual faculty which takes care of the balancing and thus allows for deepening. It's the charioteer 
who directs Jewish deteriorate on its way to awakening and to liberation. On the way, of course, we don't only need insight and wisdom, but also loving kindness and compassion. We started to practice today. Just as a bird needs two wings to be able to fly. Yet when insight and wisdom is genuine and deep, there does arise a deep sense of connectedness and care for living beings, for all of life. The Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj expressed this quite poetically. I'd like to close with this. He said, Wisdom tells me that I'm nothing. Love tells me that I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me that I'm nothing. Love tells me that I'm everything. Between these two, my life flows. Okay, quietly, together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.